Today, we're going to take a trip back in time. We're going to talk about documenting the golden era of motocross on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, and as always, I'm really excited for this show that I've got lined up. We've got a returning guest this time around. Before we bring him on, a couple of quick notes for you. First of all, all the links we talk about today are available in the blog post associated with this show. Just go to BehindTheShot.tv, find this episode. I write a little blog post about each and every one of my guests. You can read that there. Also, any links that we mention, photographer picks, anything like that, are all up at BehindTheShot.tv. As well, if you're watching on YouTube, I can't put the, the full blog post there due to limits on character count, but I do put all the links and everything that we mentioned there. And if you want to see the blog post, just head over to the website. If you are watching the video on YouTube, however, if you would head down, hit the like button, hit subscribe, bang the bell. If you hit subscribe, you won't find out about everything I release if you don't hit the bell. And then again, down in the description, you'll find everything that you need to know. Last but not least, this show is available wherever you get your podcasts in either an audio only format, or if your outlet of choice supports video, you can get it in video as well. And all the links on all the places that you can subscribe, those as well are at behindtheshot.tv. And that brings us up to the guest today. Now, the guest uh, that I got on today has been on the show before, returning champion, we'll call it. I'd like to welcome David Dewhurst to the show. David, how are you, my friend? I'm doing really well, Steve. It is so good to have you back. We've known each other for a number of years now. Uh, you were on the show before with a show we called Getting Your Photos Up to Speed, which was this great conversation with, by the way, a few surprises in it uh, about one of the shots that you photographed for Lexus years ago. I still remember my reaction when I realized how you, I don't even want to say it in case somebody hasn't seen the show, go watch it. But when you yeah. told me how you got that shot of that Lexus on a racetrack moving so fast, uh, yeah, that, that one caught me off guard. For those of you that didn't see the show, just head on up to the website. You can find it there. So, David, let's talk about you a little bit. You were born uh, not in the U.S. You were born in England. Correct. But you are based where now? L.A.? In L.A., yes. Okay. So, for those that didn't see the first show, and we went through your whole history there. I won't recreate it here, but... I think of you purely as like a, a, a motorsports vehicle type photographer. But when somebody, when you meet somebody new and you say, I'm a photographer, how do you describe it? Um, yeah, I'm a, I, I photograph anything that moves. That's, that's how I've specialized my entire career. If it moves, if it's cars, bikes, airplanes, I'm into planes as well. So yeah, I've, I've done anything that moves basically. So really anything with an engine kind of. Yeah, I, I did. I did quite a lot of soccer and some some other sports stuff for a while. But uh, but yeah, my my love is things that have engines in them. Okay, some of your clients, past clients, Suzuki, BMW, Yamaha. I mentioned Lexus was uh, the subject of the first yep. show. Toyota, Honda, both cars and motorcycles. And your outlets are literally the top of the line for this type of genre: car and driver, cycle world, cycle, etc. You are. What I would call, at least, though, in the motocross world, you're a legend in the motocross world. What's interesting to me is you're in, you're a legend in in a, the world of motocross for not getting on a bike, though, right? For being behind the camera. And I I mentioned to you as we were setting up today. So I rode dirt bikes growing up, and in those days we didn't have social media. Our quote unquote social media, the way we learned about the stars of our day, were photographs in magazines. 
And when I was riding dirt bikes as a kid, Roger DeCosta was like my hero. And I realized looking back, I was probably looking at at your photos. Do you ever look back at those days? I mean, you've got a book out now. We'll talk about the book. But do you ever look back on those days and realize what an integral part you played to fans of motocross? Yeah, at the time, it didn't. It didn't seem like anything. It was just, you know, like today, you you don't think about what's going to what people are going to think about you in twenty, thirty years time. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, w- I was, I guess, an integral part. I, in England, before I came here, I was racing motocross, and I started a weekly newspaper that was dedicated just to off-road motorcycle racing, and. Uh, w- it lasted for 40, 46 years. Ironically, the thing just folded a, a week or two ago, thanks to the internet and a bunch of other things. But it was uh, it was a highly successful newspaper. So yeah, I mean, I was heavily involved both writing and photographing uh, from the late six, very late sixties, all the way through till yesterday, basically. Well, and you started pretty young, right? You started photographing professionally at what, like sixteen or something like that? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was actually fifteen when I got my first my first job with a newspaper, shooting freelance for a newspaper in England. Yeah, so I I used to go most weekends, and at that time I was too young to drive, so my mother would actually drive me to to races so that I could shoot the pictures and do all that stuff. Okay, at some point over the years that I've known you. You mentioned that you were going to be doing a book or starting a book. And at different points, the book was at different points. And yeah. the book was going to be based on when you first told me about it, your your classic motorcycle work, right? Documenting that golden era of, of motocross. And I remember the first time you said that to me, I looked at you and said, oh, yes, please. When it's done, you know, please come back on the show. And here we are. The book is out. It is called yeah. Motocross, the Golden Era. Uh, and... Yeah. What's interesting is this book is not just your photographs, right? This book is uh, your photos and photos of a lot of other people that are out there. Do me a favor. Tell us a little bit about the, 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 you know, the inception of this book and what your hopes are for it. Yeah, well, the, the original idea was I had a wall full of three-inch ring binders, slides, negatives, and... Uh, I was just, it was frustrating to see it all there and nobody could see any of it. I thought, well, I'll do a photo, a photo book, just a, a, lots of glossy pictures. So I started going through some of the pictures and at some point I decided, you know, even doing long captions didn't really do justice to, to the, all the photographs that I had. It was because I knew a lot about obviously the, the sport and everything that I've been involved in. So I had stories around the pictures and everything and I so then it was a case of well maybe maybe I'll write a couple of stories to go around the pictures and eventually it was let's put big stories and keep big pictures which is partly why the book ended up being 480 pages it's a monster I mean it weighs almost seven pounds and uh, so it I tried to combine fairly full-length stories, chapters on riders, bikes, technology, along with still keeping the big pictures out, of fo- big photographs. So it was, I, I always wanted to have big pictures in there. So it kind of evolved from just a picture book to this monster of a thing right now that, uh, that say, weighs almost seven pounds. 
So the website for it, motocrossthegoldenera.com, right? Correct. Yep. And it's been out for what, a month or so now or? Just, uh, yeah, a month and a half, almost two months now. Yeah. Um, Okay. And how's it doing? It's phenomenal. We've sold almost a thousand copies. I only printed 3000. I was, and it's all self-published. I did this whole, everything here is everything I've done myself, including putting them in boxes and mailing them off to people through UPS. So um, it was, uh, it was a, the, the scary part was knowing how much it was going to cost to print this thing. I'd done a lot of, quite a few books in the past through publishers with other people. The financial returns on those were not all that great by the time it was all finished. So I thought, you know, I'm going to stick my neck out here and just try and do it all myself. And uh, so far, as I said, it's gone remarkably well. Almost a thousand of the books sold in less than two months. Yeah. You, you know, you mentioned the, those classic pictures and you want them to be big. You want people to be able to see them and kind of experience being there in the shot we're going to get into in a minute yeah. to me is the perfect example of that. Like you, you, some of your, your classic work to me is the perfect example of capturing an environmental shot where I understand where I am as a viewer. It's not just that I'm seeing what the photographer saw communicating to me but I feel like I'm in that spot and, and I'm dying to know, could you capture today's races or what you're capturing today with that old gear? Um, yeah, I, you know, in fact, <laughs> this, this was the, this was the gear I used back then, a Nikon mat with a 105 millimeter lens on it. Still have the camera. It's the, the one I use. Um, yeah, you can still you can still do that. The problem, and I've had so many conversations with other photographers about this. The, the problem today is that the technology is so advanced. The cameras are so far ahead of manual focus Nikon mats and stuff like that that um, it's very easy just to kind of point the camera, press the button, and spray every spray the scene with with frames, and with that ability in that technology, you kind of forget about really looking for the shot. It's like, well, somewhere in there, there'll be something. I know I've got it somewhere. You know, when you're shooting with a Nikon mat without a motor drive and you're doing it manually um, and you've got 36 frames in the camera, you really have to think about the frame. You have to think about each shot. You can't waste the time and you can't waste the film. So it was different in that respect. You really had to think about every single shot. And uh, today, now it's more of a machine gun kind of spray it with an AK and get it that way. You know, it's interesting though, because to some people, what you just described for today is like, oh yeah, I'd never go back. But I think there is, for, for those people who spray and pray, I think there is a sacrifice of of point of view of artistic vision. Is there anything photographically from those days that you miss? Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, I do. I, I miss the fact that you really had to sit and think about it. I go out and I've been out regularly in recent years shooting motocross pitches with all the modern technology. And even I find myself after 
being brought up with with mechan- all this manual mechanical stuff, I still find myself spraying the scene and going, yeah, well, you know, I'm, you know, I've got a Sony A9 that shoots a million frames a second, and I somewhere in there there'll be something, and so even I get into that kind of rut of not really thinking about it too much, which is kind of scary. And get I miss that kind of real tight focus on what it is you're trying to capture all the time. So how would your shots from then, if you had today's gear in the seventies, would I see anything different other than less grain? I mean, you being you, you having the photographic eye and photographic sense that you do, which in your genre is literally the top of the list. If you had access to today's autofocus and, and, you know, 12 to 30 frames a second, and do you really think your work would have changed? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I mean, one of the, the major thing, the biggest single change would have been I'd have had a, f- a higher success rate focus-wise. Um, so, you know, that was the big thing. And, and one of the things in the book is shooting Supercross. And you, you're, you're familiar with this, shooting music videos indoors with whatever lighting. Shooting a, a motocross race at night under lights in a stadium, zero depth of field, even if you're pushing Tri-X as far as it'll go or Ektachrome, almost no depth of field. Um, so there would have been a lot more stuff in focus because I could have pushed the, you know, AS, ISO to 60,000 if I wanted it. Um, right. that would have been the single biggest difference, but I, yeah, I think, I still think even beyond that, I think I would still have ended up just spraying it rather than focusing on it. And that's the, that's the one big difference I think. And I see other guys um, I went to a race, a big the Motocross to Nations, one of the biggest races of the year um, in Michigan a few months ago, and hundreds of photographers there, and they tend to kind of go herd-like into the same place. And there are some, there are some, some guys that I really follow and respect, the, the young guys. Um, and they're always the ones that have gone to a different location, a slightly different place. They've, they're looking at it from a different point of view. And if you've only got a limited frame number of frames to shoot, you've got to look for those alternate places. You can't just kind of go where everybody else goes and bang it out and then, well, I'll run over there and shoot another 500 frames. So it would, that, that would have changed. I think I would, I probably would have been a little more herd like in that I just kind of spray it and shoot wherever. It's funny because what you just described, so the the best lesson I ever learned in music photography was at a Mayhem Festival here at Glen Helen, and you've been at Glen Helen multiple yeah. times for Lucas Oil race type stuff. Yeah. But at Glen Helen, a Mayhem Festival years ago, and it was the first time I met who is now a good friend of mine, Alan Hess, wrote the book on concert photography. Uh, by the way, folks, if you have not read Alan Hess's book on live music photography, definitely go get it. But I remember, I, 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 oh my gosh, that's Alan Hess. Oh, there he is. And I'm standing there like everybody else. We've got three songs. We're all rushing to find our position because we know that we've got limited time. And I look over and I'm just studying Alan. And Alan is almost like you could see it. He's slowing everything down in his mind. 
and he's going wherever anybody's not, and he's going to the sides when everybody else is in the middle. And it was one of the best lessons I ever learned in photography. Slow it down and do it intentionally. And I, I take that with me 100% to, to today and everything that I shoot today. Before we bring up today's shot, this show, show is available again. I just want to remind you, wherever you get your podcasts, audio only or video. Of course, the video is also available on YouTube. And if you are watching on YouTube, please make sure to head down, uh, click the like button, click the subscribe button, bang the bell, do all of that type stuff that every YouTuber says, you know, that that helps. The, the one thing that really does help if, is if you are watching this as a podcast or listening to this as a podcast, there are two separate feeds, one for each of those. Wherever you're getting it, Spotify, Amazon Music, um, you know, Pandora or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, if you'd go drop us a star rating and drop us a written review, all of that type stuff helps. You can find all the links where you can subscribe up at the website at uh, behindtheshot.tv. So let's get into today's shot. And this image is, is one, again, I, I kind of mentioned or hinted to at the beginning that brought me back to my youth because this is Roger DeCoster. And that was, you know, literally this type of photo was my heroes growing up riding motorcycles. I lived next to a giant field and we used to take our bikes out and just ride in the field right next to our house. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it was running from police helicopters, but uh, we would go out there and we would ride and have fun. And, and these were the pictures and magazines that I grew up looking at. Film is making a comeback. So as we look at this shot, which is clearly shot on film, I kind of want to keep in mind two things. One, how film from those days does translate to today. And two, just the beauty of what people, uh, you know, rediscovering film, I guess a good way to word it today, are kind of experiencing because film really is doing a comeback. So let's start with kind of the technical stuff, and then we'll get into the creative stuff. Based on what I saw in the EXIF data, which I'll get into in a second, because part of that was confusing. This was 1974 Doddington Park. Is that correct? Yes, correct. It is Roger DeCosta, right? It is Roger DeCosta. Okay. The legend, Roger DeCosta. Just, yeah. yeah. One of the greatest ever to be on the back of a motorcycle. Here's where I'm confused on your EXIF data. This was film. This was clearly digitized either by taking a photo of it or scanning it on a drum scanner or something. And then you took the time to populate the metadata, such as the year, the time, the, the subject matter, et cetera. But the EXIF data shows that this was a, a Sony 7R Mark III. So am I correct that you photographed the print with your Sony? It's uh, the negative. We, I, I made a rig because um, I, I started doing drum scans, and the cost was getting pretty, pretty high. And once I got into doing this, I mean, I was scanning thousands of images. Thousands. I mean, there are almost eight hundred images in the book alone, just that we actually used. Um, so the cost of Drum scanning was just getting to be ridiculous. So I made a rig and 3D printed a um, a holder for a, for a slide holder and did the whole thing. So I 
all of the scan. I did essentially all the scans myself using the Sony A7R3 um, and either photograph the negative or the transparency, whichever, whichever we were working with. And uh, yeah, this was, that's so why the exif data says Sony. Yep. When you, when you say you created a rig, obviously with it being a transparency or a negative, you need a light table because it's, it's not reflected light, obviously. Correct. So is that what you were doing? You had them on a light table with a camera mounted overhead? Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's not, it isn't built that way. Um, I, I wish I brought it with me and I could show you, but uh, it's all set horizontally, not vertically. And uh, yeah, I just use 50 millimeter rails and uh, some various mounting pieces. And I, I 3D printed a, a piece that actually holds the transparency uh, in, in the plane with the camera. So in front of a light of source of some sort in front of a, in front of an led light source. Correct. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Cause that would explain like the EXIF data shows this was ISO 100, a quarter of a second aperture F10 manual white balance, 70 millimeters with a 24 to 72.8. A yeah. great idea to do that. So you actually hung it vertically, almost like looking at an x-ray in a doctor's office. No, it was it was horizontal. It was horizontal. So the the camera's in a regular horizontal position, looking looking across, across. the slide, which is vert. The slide is vertical in front. Is of vertical, the camera. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, I I want to hear your story of capturing this. Before you do that, for those of you on the audio feed, I'm going to try and give you a mental picture of what I'm looking at. But I'm going to be honest with you up front. You need to go see this shot. You can see it at the website, BehindTheShot.tv, because there are so many, I don't want to use the phrase moving parts, but for lack of a better phrase, there are so many, so many detail, scenic parts to this shot that I think are really critical to understanding the, the compositional smartness that's happening here, right? You're in the English countryside. You're on rolling grass hills. And scattered through those rolling grass hills are a bunch of trees. And I don't mean evenly spread. So it's rolling open grass and then bunches of trees, right? Kind of kind of grouped or clumped in certain areas. This is such an English rolling hill countryside with scattered trees that you can see the green in your mind like you're standing on the hill that is your vantage point here, except it's not green here. This is a black and white shot, and it is so well composed with that environment that to me, I, I see the green that's in this, right? At the lower third, you're standing on a hill, right? You're a lower hill. Yeah. You're looking down into a valley, and at the lower third, as it goes down into the valley, that's where it transitions the lower third. The upper third, it transitions going back up a hill in the distance, that hill in the distance is actually higher than or perceived to be higher than the hill you're on. Yeah. The valley is in the mid-third. Now, on the top third of the hill, the hill in the background, is a parking lot with a ton of cars. There's trees on the left, on the right, above the cars. So the, there's almost like a frame within a frame just of the parking lot. In the middle, on the far left and right, there's tents. Like, I don't want to say easy-ups. It's those big, like white wedding type tents with poles and a yeah. ton of people, clearly the audience. That's basically the valley area, right? Coming up the hill to where you are, there's more people 
And separating you from those people are short posts. I'm saying maybe a foot roped together. So there's a rope going from post to post. That kind of sets the scene that you're in. You can picture this vast English countryside. And right in front of you, dirt track and a motorcycle rider. The rider is leaving the left third of the shot, moving to the right, the front wheel off the ground, the back wheel kicking up dirt, right? The dating here is really clear. And that's because unless somebody went back and and restored an old bike, this is clearly an old 70s bike. The helmet, you can tell, it's grainy in the most beautiful way that you could ever see a film shot. Really, honestly, when you're looking at this shot, I, I feel like I can hear the bike in front of me. Did I miss anything? Uh, no, I mean, it, it's uh, the composition was maybe a little lucky. Uh, I wasn't really, I mean, I was trying to capture the scene. I saw the view that you just so eloquently described. But the hard part, as it always is with motocross, is is trying to capture the moment with the bike. So for me, when I was shooting the picture, I was looking for that very instant, that fraction of a second where Roger DeCostick's coming over a very slight hump in the ground, front wheels in the air. He's got the handlebar sideways. So for me, it was the bike and the rider and the position of the rider that was important. The background, obviously, yes, was important, but it was that that instant of uh, as the the wheel came off the ground. There, I actually shot five five images in this one position, and we'll get into some of that in a second. But I I shot five different people, and I shot Roger DeCosta one lap before this, similar angle, similar everything, but the wheel wasn't up in the up in the air. He wasn't as crossed up, but I'd seen him in previous laps going through before I shot the frame, doing essentially what he's doing in this shot. So I'd seen it and I knew it. I, you know, if I could just capture that one second, it was that was it. That was the thing I was trying to capture. The the other three frames of other riders, they weren't doing the quite the same crossed up look that you have in this image here. So I was, yeah, the background, the composition overall, yeah, I was trying to get that whole view. But for me, that it was just that one second as he lifts the front wheel. And it's, it's just such a classic, you know, classic 70s motocross look that everybody, anybody that was there in that, that time period, yourself included, recognizes that crossed up look as being just classic motocross. And I think yeah. that as much as anything is what connects with everybody that sees the sees that picture is just like oh my god that is that's how they would all love to be remembered as riding like that because you know it's classic and it's Roger DeCosta and and it's funny you mention that cuz that's the one thing i didn't mention when i described but yes the right handlebar is pulled back left handlebar uh, left side yeah. of the handlebar pushed out slight tilt to that front wheel and the bike is leaning to the left as he's basically, he's come up this, this almost like a berm shot or bump and it's lifted that front tire up. But here's, here's the thing to me, this is a tough shot even today with today's gear, right? Today, 
people would be tracking with autofocus. And as they're following them up the hill, they'd still have to try and snap it at the right time to get the right framing, to get the background, and to get the motorcycle rider where he is. Because there is right behind him a giant bush or small tree, whatever it is, and that's slightly downhill. And if he was right in front of that, it would be a weaker shot. The, the timing here is impeccable. What, b- before you get into the full detail here, what were the challenges as you're standing here with film? What were your challenges? Obviously, autofocus, you didn't have autofocus, you didn't have tracking. So did you pre-focus as bikes were going yeah. by to this spot? You Or what were you doing? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, that's exactly what you had to do. There was no option. You couldn't try and follow focus. The bikes are moving too fast, changing direction way too quickly. Um, so, you again, you got to kind of study, study what's going on and go, that point on the racetrack, whatever it is, is where this bike is going to be going next time. Next time Roger DeCosta comes past me, he's going to be on that spot. Uh, so you focus on the bit of grass right where you think he's going to be. Pray you've got enough depth of field, and you just manage to, you know, guess the right spot. But you, you know, it's a case of studying. It's really watching where the riders are going. And again, going back to where we talked about spraying the the scene. If you're just spraying the scene, you don't really worry about it too much because something in there is going to be in focus. Something's going to be sharp, whatever. But you know, here you really had to, you know, you only had one chance. It was it was that one press of the button. It was either good or it was bad. So you, you really, really had to work at making sure you'd pick the right spot, understanding it. As a racer myself, you know, I raced a lot back in the day. Uh, you kind of, you, you have a feel for, more of a feel for it. You get to, you understand what's going to be happening and the kind of the, the the physics of what's going on so you know i saw this and i was lucky enough just to get the spot in focus and you know everything worked do you remember what film this was yeah triax it's all try i have the negative still on my desk and uh, yeah it was triax okay. but let's let's go to the the probably the more important part um uh which was what the equipment was the film Maybe not so important, but the equipment that I used was uh, was more important. As I said, I was at the time I was using Nikomat with this is all I had. I was a twenty two year old college college kid studying right. industrial commercial photography, but I had limited equipment, limited money. So the I had another camera with me, and that's what I shot this on, um, and that's the camera I shot it on. A Raleigh Flex, a twin lens reflex Raleigh Flex, no pentaprism. Um, the the if anybody's familiar with this camera, you pop open the pop open the viewfinder on top. That uh, small section behind. It, the yeah, Rolleiflex you're looking side. down through the top of the camera. Looking down through the top of the camera, you can actually, if you want, you can the 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 front face that would be above the Raleigh flex sign um, can actually fall down and so you can look straight through it and get some kind of weird approximation of what the camera's going to see. Uh, 
but on that the camera I had, it was an old one and it was broken. It was jammed and it wouldn't go down. So the only way to actually use it was looking down through the through the viewfinder. But without the pentaprism, that image is laterally inverted. It's upside down, back to front, and everything else. So you're looking at, when you're looking through this camera, and this camera's normally used for portraits and whatever, you know, wedding pictures, maybe that kind of thing. Never designed as a an action motion camera and uh, you look through this thing from above and everything's backwards and upside down so if you're panning in this case left to right with roger de costa through the camera it looks like he's going right to left and he's upside down everything's backwards so on top of having it's an equivalent of about a 50 millimeter lens on this thing on top of all the other problems of using this camera everything's backwards upside down and everything else so extremely hard to to get get a frame out of the 10 images that are on that roll of film which i still have downstairs and in the file i got eight frames that were kind of usable which was kind of a miracle really at that time um but again i'm going i'm going left to right it looks like the bike's going right to left very very hard to do and uh it was just there was a lot of luck in using this camera, managing to get that frame, get it sharp and, you know, everything in focus. So, yeah, that was Why? the hard part. I guess my question is, you had the other camera. What yeah, made but, you decide to go with yeah. Raleigh Flex? Well, as I said, I had no, I had so much, little money, no equipment. I had the Nikon Mat with a 105 millimeter lens and I had the, the Raleigh with the equivalent of a 50 millimeter lens. This this location, I couldn't step back. There were trees and bushes behind me here. So I was limited on how far back I get. I was trying to get the view, this overall look. And uh, the 105 lens on the Nikomat was just, it was too long. It was just, it would have just been such a tight shot on the bike and it wouldn't have been half as effective. So I was just trying to use this as, you know, the alternate to changing lenses and put another lens on my Nikomat. Yeah, it would have been a lot easier with a Nikon mat, but um, but it would uh, it would have meant costing costing more money than I had at the time. So that was it. So here's a question, and forgive this may be for anybody who shoots film or has shot you know either of these bodies. This is probably a stupid question, but is there is there anything that this camera added that is unique to itself? The other, no, I mean the only thing it really added was was the size of the negative. So you know the the quality the quality of the negative was was pretty darn high. It was slightly underexposed. I look at it now and kind of kick myself, but the whole, <laughs> this whole roll of film was you know a good at least half a stop to a stop underexposed. Um, so getting that image that you see there took quite a bit of Photoshop work to kind of bring all the elements together. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a bunch of stuff done in Photoshop here. The, the foreground has a gradient over it to darken up that, uh, the grass in the front, just to kind of lift your eyes up to the bike, a little bit of gradient up in the sky, trying to bring you down the sky. You know, this is a, this is 1974. So, you know, it was an old negative, a lot of, 
crap ingrained in in the negative by this time. I'd used it a bunch of times, so it had marks and scratches and God knows what. So there's a lot of Photoshop went into making this. The the bike itself, the the engine was pretty blocked out in the dark areas, so we had to work on you know doing all, a lot of stuff to the negative, but. If it had been on the 35 millimeter negative and the same issues, it probably would have been a bit harder to to make it look this good. So the light here looks fantastic. It looks, it looks, I'm wondering if it's, was it overcast? Yeah, it was just gray overcast day. Yeah. So you basically had just this giant softbox of light. Yeah. Because- You know, on a sunny day, I'd expect to see lots of specular highlights in a lot of the areas in this photo. You know, the white tents, the helmet, the the gas tank, etc. The exposure here, understanding you've done some stuff to it, but still, the overall exposure and result here is so balanced and so even. Uh, I want to get into that. You know, you mentioned Photoshop, but I also want to get into, you know, when it was just film in the darkroom, what you might have done. Before we do that, though, I am curious. From a focus point of view, because you had to pre-focus on, like you say, a mound of grass that they might go over, et cetera, there's no changing it. With all the motocross that you've shot, if somebody were to start trying for fun to use film, and I see this, by the way, in, in concert photo pits all the time, where somebody will have you know, a camera or two cameras, and then around their neck, they'll have an old film camera just for fun. Photographing action with a, with an old film camera. Is there any, you know, tip that you would give people to, to nail the focus better with a manual focus type scenario? Focus wise, no. I mean, well, for what you do in particular, it's really hard because you're usually below the below the level of the the artist, so you don't really have a a point on the ground that you can focus right. on. But then again, they're not moving so fast, so you can probably follow follow focus pretty well. Um, no, again, it's it, it, in any action type of situation like this, whether it's cars or bikes, you just got to you just have to watch. It laps before it all happens. You just have to watch where that bike goes, where the car goes, and know exactly where it's going to be, and just just find focus on pebbles in the road. And it literally comes down to that. Just leave, you know, um, tufts of grass, whatever it is. You just have to look at look at those that point, know where where you think it's going to be, and it's pretty hard. It's well, it's pretty easy to to do it if you if you really watch it carefully, and that's the difference again between doing it old style and doing it, you know, with uh, sixty frames a second or whatever you can do these days. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the hard part, picking the spot. What's interesting to me as I look at this shot is this is t- take DeCoster and the motorcycle out, right? Yeah, with 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 that whole bit out of there. This shot is a landscape shot. It's a really well-executed landscape shot with layers upon layers upon layers. You've got the hill, you've got the rope, you've got a tuft of people, you've got a valley. You then have the tents and a tree line and people. Then you have the uphill with the parking lot. And then you have structures and trees and stuff in the background. It is the layers really make this a fantastic just landscape shot, right? Everything lines up. And then when you drop in that motorcycle and that rider in the front, 
the scene and the subject kind of become cohesive and become one. When, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, again, having shot a lot of stuff just recently, um, you know, I find myself falling into the same trap in that it's because you've got zoom lenses, you've got autofocus, you've got all this stuff going in your favor, and it becomes so much easier to kind of to zero in on something. You know, back then you'd be you'd be afraid to use the long lens because you know it's probably got not enough depth of field, and the chances of getting in focus are pretty slim. So there was this kind of nervous retreat to the to the to the wider angle lens, and you know so you were in some ways forced to do some of this stuff. That image, if I'd been there last week with my A9 Sony, I'd have probably had an 80-200 zoom lens on there, and I'd have probably zoomed in knowing I could get him in focus no matter where he was, not had to think about it, and I'd have probably gone in a lot tighter. Right. And probably not thought about that, the scenery at all. Um but you you were forced back then to to look at the overall shot rather than just this tight shot of the bike. And you look in all the magazines, look at everything online these days, and everything is a tight shot of the bike. It's a frozen high shutter speed, you know, thousandth of a second, whatever it is. Spokes all sharp and everything. This this thing I think was shot at a two hundred and fiftieth of a second. It might have been a five hundredth, but I don't think so. You can still see the spokes, but they're kind of blurry. Um, again, that's that's part of the the beauty of the shot for me, at least, is you know you can tell not just because the wheels in the air, but because the spokes are blurred. Uh, there's obviously some motion going on here, and uh, again, you know, because you were limited, <laughs> because you were limited with Tri-X, and you know maybe you could push it to a thousand ISO or something like that. You were limited on how how high a shutter speed you could use. And I, I, again, I have no idea what the aperture was on this thing, but uh, it was probably fairly well, fairly wide open. I know it was a pretty dark day. So there were a lot of, you know, it, the equipment really does change the way you look at the picture and the way you shoot it, definitely. Yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because on a show, somebody commented on an old show I had done a couple months ago. And they said, you know, oh, they're talking too much about gear. They're too, they specifically mentioned me, too focused on gear. And two things. One, beginning photographers need a baseline. Yes. And the comment was, you'll never recreate it. I could hand you the same gear. You'll never recreate it. But beginning photographers or schooled photographers, well-to-do photographers that are maybe switching genres, having a baseline, whether you can recreate it or not, let somebody know if they're on the right track. But also, you know, gear does actually matter, right? There, oh, yeah. my, my old rule of thumb is upgrade your gear when you've reached the limit. I shot concerts with a Canon 7D and I was fine. When I found myself shooting more metal shows that were in very dark uh, environments where 3200 ISO and beyond looked really bad at my camera, that was the time to upgrade the camera. Those things do matter here. What film you chose, the camera you chose, the lens limitations you had, they all, they all matter. But then you get into the stuff that happens after a shot. And you mentioned Photoshop. 
I'm assuming you mean getting it ready for the book, but in 1974, yeah. Photoshop didn't exist. No. What did you do? Because you had already used, you said, the negative a number of times before yeah. you started prepping it for this book. In a dark room, what did you originally do to this? Do you, If you remember. Well, actually I do because I have the, one of the original very early prints of this thing. Because um, actually... <laughs> I didn't have this negative, um, and I only found the negative a couple of years ago. So I had a, a, a I don't know, it was an eight by, I think I had an eight by ten print of the thing, which I'd used to copy and try and try and use, and it was, it was so many generations old at that point that it was starting to get a little soft around the edges, um, and then I I found the negative. Somebody had actually had it and returned it to me, and. Uh, so I, I do remember doing some of the stuff that I did here in Photoshop, which was just darkening, darkening the foreground, you know, just going in and dodging and burning by hand, trying to bring up some of the detail in the sky. Because if in the straight negative, if you just printed this onto a sheet of 8x10 Kodak paper, black and white paper right now um, in a dark room, the sky would be pretty much blown out. And the the bike itself, the engine, the the fins and things would not be very easily seen. So I did some dodging and burning to much the same way that I did in Photoshop. And I work in Photoshop, kind of in a in a an analog way, if you will. Uh, I always think of it. That's how I trained as a in a darkroom. Spent my entire life. I, my first job, real job, was working in a darkroom as an industrial commercial photographer's place and uh, that was my job just stuck in a dark room with a an enlarger and paper and just printing printing up things like this all day long so and i i kind of think in the same way dodging and burning and bringing things up taking things down so yeah it will be it would be it was the same then basically as it is now you just don't get that stinky smell of fixer on your hands when you do it that's the difference <laughs> Yes. Yes. I know exactly what you mean. So I want to switch to a speed round and I want to start with what you just touched on. For those people that are doing dodging and burning, whether it be in the digital darkroom or a, an actual darkroom, that was such a tool back in the film day okay. that is done a million different ways now in Photoshop or Lightroom. There's a ton of different ways yeah. that you can do dodging, dodging and burning from you know, overlay layers of 50% of gray to using a dodging and burning tool to, you know, what I call dodging and burning, which often includes, you know, dehaze or something like that mixed in with exposure, mixed in with whites, mixed in because you can do that with one brush now. But the whole point of dodging and burning doesn't change. The intent of dodging and burning is to alter the light to try and bring a viewer's eye through the photo the way you want their eye to travel through the photo, hopefully ending up at your intended subject. Yeah. Any tips with your years of experience that you would give people on how to look at dodging and burning? Yeah, I, I, well, as you say, it's all about bringing the focus into whatever that important subject is. Uh, and it's very easy to get lost for the viewer if he's uh, just given a, a straight image to get lost in that image and be just looking around the corners and everywhere else. So I, 
I'm, I'm always I'm always looking at a, a vignette to bring you know doing something like that. Some gradient filters from top, bottom, corners, whatever it is. Um, I, I quite often do. I'll actually cut out the main subject in a lot of cases. So I'll go and cut out and separate them literally digitally from the background and work on the background as a separate image um, and then reintroduce the subject. And so you could, once they once you take them out of the, the main image and start working looking at the background as a separate thing, you look at the whole picture as something very, very, very different at that point, um, and so you, it really exaggerates how how much the 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 edges of the frame are distracting you when you take that subject out. So I that's I do that a lot. If I had the time uh, to do it, I'll I'll actually cut out like in this case the DeCoster bike image was shot was cut out. I went around and just with a pen tool and just cut him out and not very precise. But once I got him out of the frame and you look at the background image, you, you realize just like the sky's gone way too far, too light. You know, there's there's a bit, you know, and it's all subtle. There's a, there's a vignette going on here, just bringing you in. There's the, the foreground gradient that I threw in there. Um, and and I don't. Uh, this this was not a, just a straight gradient. This was a, another layer. I just took the whole layer of dirt between the foreground and the people in the background, and I just did a darker image of that whole area, and then just did a, a gradient as a um, as a uh, a mask. Layer. A mask. I did a gradient mask to bring it back in from the top. So, you know, but you can do it so many different ways. I don't usually use the actual dodge and burn tools in Photoshop themselves, but the effect is the same doing all this layering and, you know, whatever. And and I find, I completely agree with you. I find removing the subject changes your view and can really affect the view of the viewer uh, I did a video not long ago. First of all, a while ago, I did Aunt Pruitt's show, Hands-On Photography, and he asked for a tip. And one of them was the way I used to do Lightroom, where I had a preset of settings, like five or six different settings from blacks, whites, shadows, dehaze, exposure. And I would do a radial filter around the subject, fading away from the subject to give not a vignette, but to separate the subject from the background. But now I just recently did a video where with the new masking tools that are available in yeah. Photoshop and Lightroom, specifically select subject. Yes. I will select a subject, then run a preset or and then customize it as needed for that shot on the background separate from the person. And it it gives you this layering 3D effect as long as you don't overdo it and make it look yeah. like a composite because it's not. So back to the speed questions, top tip for motorcycles, motorsports, cars, et cetera. Um, well, again, especially we're going, let me go back to what you were just saying earlier or asking earlier, which was about the, the shooting film. Cause I have two sons who are kind of in the business shoot and they are shooting with my old Canon cameras using film. They're doing digital obviously as well, but they just shoot film too. Um, and, one tip I will give to anybody who shoots modern digital stuff is 
shoot manually in every respect. Shoot, turn off autofocus, turn off the motor drive, just shoot single frame, do it old school all the way, and you'll find that you look at it and shoot it so much differently than if you just autofocus. Don't use zoom, don't use a zoom lens. Just look at the subject, set whatever you think is right, but don't keep you know winding that ring around just to get that perfect whatever it is, 53 and a half millimeter lens that you think you need. But do it all manually and, and in an analog way. It will totally change the way you shoot everything, I think, anyway. Um, but I, from modern day stuff, um, I think the, the, bigger, the, the two biggest things are uh, shutter speed and depth of field is, you know, if you're shooting action, like this this frame here, um, you've got to remember it is action. You've got to you're trying to show its action. Frozen action is rarely really good action on, in a photograph. So look at shutter speed and don't be shooting at a thousandth or a two thousandth of a second. Everything's going to be frozen. It's going to look pretty ugly. It's a good way of capturing some horrendous moment when the car goes flying through the air and it's you know there's bits flying everywhere off the bike or the car or something. But but usually you want to be shooting at a lower shutter speed. I I one of my um, one of my favorite photographers right now um, shoots a bunch of stuff for um, for uh, Red Bull. Does all the Red Bull action stuff. And one of the things he's amazingly good at is shooting extremely low shutter speeds. He'll shoot crazy action at 15th of a second or a 30th of a second, um, which isn't too hard to do if it's a car on a road because the motion's pretty linear and it's, you know, they're not really necessarily accelerating much or decelerating. So it's fairly easy. Doing motocross, the bike's going literally in every direction. It's it's going left to right. It's going up and down constantly over the bumps. It's going from side to side. There's so much motion going on in so many different planes um, that it's very hard to do. He's mastered this to, to be able to do it at extremely low shutter speed. I love to try doing it. Uh, it's a very low success rate. But again, it's pushing yourself to do the hard part because it's so easy to do the easy way and just fire it at a thousandth of a second or freeze it. Oh, look, it's in focus. Whoopee. But, but just push yourself to do lower shutter speeds and try doing it manually too. So you look at it in a different way. One of my favorite quotes was when I first started uh, judging image, local image competitions and somebody had a shot of a race car and the judge looked at it and said, I'm sorry, it looks like it's parked. And it's because they shot it at such a high shutter speed. It was not parked. Yep. It was driving, but they froze the rims yeah. and there was no sense of motion. What is, if you have one, your favorite composition rule? It's hard. Well, with motor, shooting the motocross and car things, it's there's uh, the composition sometimes is purely accidental. I mean, you. some of my favorite pictures were, I didn't consciously think about, well, I'm going to have this in the lower third here right. and I'll do this. Or it, I mean, it just, it just happens. And that's, again, one of the things about doing action photography is 
like doing your concert stuff is sometimes you just capturing an instant you're not there's no no great plan usually in exactly how you want to frame it sometimes the best shots are just things that just happen you know the the there is it's all coincidence a lot of the time you know you are still a working photographer today what is your favorite source of inspiration um i i love looking at old images um, especially for the, the the motocross side of things. I mean, I shoot a lot of cars for car companies and things like that. Um, but I love I love looking at all on Instagram and stuff like that at vintage pictures. In fact, a friend of mine in England bought just bought a a, a library of stuff from a photographer I knew when I was before I even shot this picture that we're talking about here. Um, who was shooting in the in the fifties and sixties? I think he died in the middle mid seventies. Um, shooting with four by five, he was shooting with play cameras and and two two and a quarter square cameras. And you look at the stuff that they shot; it was the exposures were exquisite. The the framing was exquisite. The the negatives, because I've seen some of the negatives since then, they're just so beautiful. Because the guys were really thinking. I mean, you're shooting with a four by five plate camera. You're not. You're not just banging it off and hoping something works. You're really thinking about it carefully. And I look at some of those old pictures and think how difficult it must have been. And I try to think of how I can shoot it today, and think about those the details that they must have been thinking about back in the day. Just exactly how it was going to be done. How every single time you press the button. It had to be right. And, you know, so I, I, I look for old pictures as a lot of inspiration. What is your favorite band or performer? Um, Led Zeppelin, partly because uh, I was lucky enough to meet and spend a couple of days with John Bonham back in the day. Um, John's son, Jason, yep. was was an accomplished motocross racer back in the day when he was young. And, he still rides, uh, by the way. He, yeah, he still rides uh, in between all the the, the uh, gigs he does. Um, but Jason was pretty good, and his dad was kind of obsessed with motocross and cars and anything American. And uh, he ended up sponsoring the Kawasaki motocross team in England. And um, he he was the patron of the 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 band, the band was the patron of uh, Kawasaki at the time, and uh, so Jason became one of the team riders, and he was quite successful. I mean, he wasn't the best rider in the world, but he was pretty successful. So I got to hang out with those guys and uh, a couple of times, and that was that was a lot of fun. And the music, I mean, how can you how can you complain about Led Zeppelin, right? I'm a I'm a longtime Zepp fan. Uh, there's a picture of me behind me over this way uh, with myself and my wife and Robert Plant, which was like a highlight of my life backstage at one of the shows. And I photographed Jason a number of times, super nice guy, an amazing drummer and great on stage. What is your favorite drink? Uh, I'm British. It's gin and tonic. I mean, you have to, <laughs> there you go. Now, I, mean, I, now I have to ask, do you have a preferred gin? Because it matters. Yeah. Well, oh yeah, I yeah, I actually one of the ones I really like is uh, No Let's Gin. Um, 
very aromatic and uh, it's uh, it's you can drink it just on its own or with some tonic in there but i i love that uh, the aromatics in the in the, the no lets so i like no lets uh, i'll drink sapphire I like Hendrix, uh, yeah. and it, my yeah. favorite used to be for years and years, Boodles, which is a little harder to find here. Yeah. Last question. Is there a photographer that you think more people should know about? Um, boy, that, well, past or present. There are, I mean, there are some... Um, there are some guys that I thought were just... Um, amazing at doing what I was doing in in the day. There was a guy called Fran Kuhn, K-U-H-N, who uh, was doing motorcycle stuff, doing a lot of magazine stuff. The guy was just unbelievably clever at capturing the instant, that's that magic moment. He went on to persuade uh, us, uh, I think it was O'Neill uh, Racing, a, a big clothing distributor and whatever. They they did a, a magazine for a few years uh, that was just absolutely spectacular. I don't think it ever made any money and it kind of went away. But Fran was one of those guys that could just, he, he never shot anything bad. And uh, I, I don't know what he's doing these days. So I haven't seen anything yet, but he was, he did a lot of stuff for Honda, for the ad agency, shooting motorcycles, but probably one of the most talented race guys I've ever seen. Okay. And I will put that link and all the links that we've talked about in the blog post. It's over at behindtheshot.tv. Uh, if people want to connect with you, what's your website? It's uh, just Dewhurst Photo, just my name, dewhurstphoto.com. Or the, the book is motocrossthegoldenera.com. Okay. And by the way, uh, not just the website for the book, but also Instagram and Facebook, Motocross the Golden Era, you can find there. David on Instagram is David Dewhurst. Facebook yeah. is Dewhurst Photo. And Twitter yeah. is Dewhurst Photo. So yeah. follow David everywhere and grab yourself a copy of the book because trust me, especially if you're into motocross, but if you're just into photography at all, it is just some amazing, amazing work in this book. David, as always, it's great to see you. Thank you for doing this, my friend. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Steve. Always good to see you. Reminder, all the links that we talk about uh, are at the blog post. It's at behindtheshot.tv. Head up there. You can find this episode, a small bit that I wrote about David, the links to him, the links to the book, uh, the link to the photographer that he picked, uh, all of that type of information. All the places, by the way, that you can subscribe are up there as well. You can find this show two different ways in a podcast app, audio only or video if your outlet or app of choice supports video, like Apple Podcasts, for example, supports video. If you're watching on YouTube, all the links are down below. Just pass down by the uh, subscribe and the like button. Hit them on the way, hit the bell, and you can find everything that we talk about down there. I do want to remind everybody that I have, I do workshops for Princeton Photo Workshop. And at the time we're recording this, which is early January of 2023, if you watch this after February, this will not apply. 
but I do have a workshop coming up. It's a one-day, two-hour workshop, Introduction to Live Music Photography, and it is at PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. It's going to be Thursday, February 16th of 2023 from 7 to 9. It's more of a presentation, but with interaction and everything. It's a virtual workshop. It's, it's not in person, so you can join from anywhere in the world as long as you can do 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern time on, on February uh, 16th. Uh, David, thank you as always, and to everybody else, please make sure you join us next time as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind the shot. Yeah.